0: Hello, welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. You know, I always think that when we're ready, right? There's that saying, when we're ready, the teacher arrives. And this is always true for people I meet and conversations I have. They just happen to have the words in the right order that I need to hear something that validates or reaffirms or opens a window or a door to a perspective that I might not have seen. We have to be willing to see perspectives, right? We have to be willing to learn. We have to find humility, the ability to admit that we can do things better or differently or whatever it might be. You know, this opportunity to broaden one's mind, to broaden one's perspective, to broaden one's possibility really is what that does. Whenever you learn new perspectives, whenever you learn something new, you are expanded in that moment. And you know, when I originally started studying positive psychology, I was just so drawn to it because psychology as a, I mean, it truly expanded me. Positive psychology truly broadened what I thought was possible. And the creation of it was the broadening of what was possible. You know, psychology historically was about studying what's wrong with people. Why do we have a certain quote unquote dysfunction? And how do we make it better? How do we heal it? How do we fix it? And that just didn't really sit right in that sort of context with me. Obviously, I love psychology. I love the study of human nature, of human behavior, of human connection. It's Honestly, it's my favorite subject. I I think it's everybody's favorite subject. They just might not know because if you look at what alcohol and coffee are consumed talking over or what most texts are sent about, it's about relating. It's about people. It's about connection. It's about community. It's what matters. It's about how do we figure this out? And I, the only one who doesn't know, and you're not, we all, we all don't know what the fuck we're doing. We're just figuring it out as we go. And it's just so much easier to just admit that, to just acknowledge that. And I'm doing the best I can, you know? And that's always the the state that we have to explore is like, I'm doing the best I can with what I can and have. and. Am I leaving any on the table? And the beauty of positive psychology is it was this exploration, or it is this exploration of what's right with people. Why do some people have amazing relationships and others not? Why do some people thrive and others don't? What is the secret sauce to well-being that people don't even know they're doing in some cultures and places in the world where they live well past a 100? You know, that's so incredible. And to be able to study that, right? Just so beautiful to be able to explore that, to be able to learn that. And that's what we're doing. You didn't know, you're in a positive psychology podcast. And I'm so excited to have today's guest. He is incredible. He's a happiness coach, an executive coach, and an author. Today's guest is Robert Mack, who studied under the direction of Martin Seligman, who's the founder of positive psychology. So we got like the OG of the OG here. And he's one of the world's leading experts on the relationship between happiness and success. Robert helps individuals and organizations achieve an energizing balance of authentic personal happiness and effortless professional success. I mean, who doesn't want more of that? That sounds great. I want effortless. He's been endorsed by Oprah, Vanessa Williams, many others. He's been seen on Good Morning America, The Today Show, Access Hollywood, E, Own, GQ, Self, Health, Cosmo, Glamour, Bam, 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 Bam. His first book, Happiness from the Inside Out, The Art and Science of Fulfillment, is endorsed and critically acclaimed, and it's been translated into various languages, including Chinese. He's an incredible man. I'm so excited to have him on today. Before we begin, I want to offer a trigger warning. We do talk about the subject of suicide and suicidal ideation. So if those subjects are are triggering for you, please honor that and stop here. And if you're someone who's struggling with those thoughts, contact your local services for support. And there's also great resources on psychologytoday.com. I wanted to take a moment to share with you one of the most transformational moments in relationship for me. And it was due to learning about attachment theory. Attachment theory, really, when I discovered it, all of a sudden it made sense. Why do I over-pursue? Why do I get really anxious when the person I'm dating hasn't replied to me? And why do I pursue unavailable people? And why do I run from people who want to love me? And it was through learning those structures that, one, I felt really human And it also gave me these strategies by having a good teacher in the area of attachment theory. It gave me strategies to finally communicate, to finally say the things I was feeling, to finally get the courage, to finally create security. And I remember this moment where Kylie and I were both laying on the bed and we were both flooded, you know, that overwhelm where you can't, the words are sitting in your throat. You got so many words, but you don't know how to get them out. And I remember just after the understanding I'd had and like how she related and what her attachment style was, there was just this moment when I finally put into words, I took the courageous leap to finally state something that I needed. To be able to create security in our relationship. I knew that if I wanted to move forward and open my heart more, I needed to have this conversation and create security because it was about that more than it was about keeping the peace. And that was a really important moment in my own relationship and certainly in Kylie and I's relationship, but in the way I related because I started to show up more secure. I started to realize that I had to create security. I couldn't chase it. I couldn't chase connection. I had to create it, hence, you know, of course, why I call it create the love. Although create the love was, it was called that before this actual experience. And so this is why I've created a course with one of the world's best teachers. Sylvie Kokashian, she's amazing at teaching attachment theory and how to understand your attachment style, your partners to give more context to your relationship experience, and then how to create security, how to change the way you attach. So whether you're single or in a relationship, this course is insanely valuable. So if this sounds like something you're working on changing and actually changing your attachment style and how to create secure, loving relationships, go to createthelove.com slash... Attachment 101. A-T-T-A-C-H-M-E-N-T 101. This is some of the most important work that I learned and it was so applicable to relationship as soon as I learned it. So if this tweaks your interest and you're like, I do want to learn how to create secure, loving relationships, make sure you sign up right away because the early bird ends this Sunday, September 5th. Go to com slash attachment101 and you will save $50. So the course is only 147 if you sign up for the early bird, 197 after Sunday. And so with that said, I can't wait for you to hear this episode with Robert Mack. Welcome to another episode of the Mark podcast. I'm excited to have with me today, positive psychology expert and author, Robert Mack. Welcome, my friend.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Man, I mean, your your passions are right in alignment with my passions. Super excited to have you on here because, you know, people might have oddly heard about positive psychology or the science of happiness. You know, they might have heard about it from articles in the Atlantic or the New York Times or something like that. But, you know, often we're not thinking about what's right with me, (laughs) thinking about what's wrong with me. So I'm curious, what got you into that? How did you find it? How have you helped serve people with that?
1: Yeah. So oddly enough, it was because I felt like there was so much wrong with me, (laughs) right? So growing up, I was probably, as far as I could tell, the unhappiest kid I had ever known or had ever met. I always thought I would grow out of the unhappiness. I mean, I was like incessantly stressed out and anxious and self-loathing. I always thought, well, eventually I'll have some friends and maybe have a girlfriend and I'll maybe become a professional basketball player. That was my dream. And, you know, and I'll grow out of this unhappiness thing. But Lo and behold, that didn't happen, at least not right away. So I continued to do pretty well academically and athletically and even made some friends along the way, eventually had a girlfriend, had a consulting job. The unhappiness only got worse and I sort of graduated from like dysphoria to like deep depression, severe depression. And then I eventually got to a place where I was incredibly suicidal. I was experiencing suicidal ideation. I mean, dozens and dozens of times a day. I thought about killing myself more than I thought about anything or anybody else in the world. And so I eventually got to a place where I decided to do some research and I decided I was going to slash my wrist. So went to the kitchen, got a kitchen knife and dug into my wrist. And, you know, something very unpredictable and unexpected to happen in that moment, which was that for no good reason, without anything changing in my external conditions of my life, you know, and I had a pretty good life. That was the thing, you know, I was healthy and seemed objectively to be going pretty well. Subjectively, it just felt terrible. When I dug this knife into my wrist, I felt this inexplicable peace and joy and sense of well-being that I had never experienced before, at least not in this palpable sort of like deep way. And so I decided to postpone the suicide for 15 minutes at the time. It was just 15 minutes. And even that felt like a really ambitious tall order. (laughs) You know, I look back now and it's kind of funny, but it's like, I didn't think I could Last 15 minutes without killing myself, I started doing some research, and after actually several years, I discovered this program at the University of Pennsylvania. But really, the entire effort was just for me to be happy. I never had no real ambition of becoming a happiness coach or really even being a positive psychology expert. It was just like I want to be happy.
0: Period. Well, is not that seem to be the birth of all of it? Is this intrinsic motivation? If I can discover it, then I can teach. You know, I sort of see a lot of the work I do as me just basically writing a chapter about my latest chapter and really writing it to myself or teaching it to myself. You know, that younger version of me needs to learn what I needed to learn, which I learned and what I learned from other people. And, you know, to know that it comes from such an authentic place that you've been in the depths of that and found the way out. I mean, what an inspirational piece to know it's possible, right? To know that you can. And just your story, I'm sure for people listening, because, you know, in the last, our mental health has certainly taken a lot of strain in the last year and a half. If it wasn't already strained enough, add the last year and a half of a collective trauma to that. And yeah, it's been wild.
1: You just nailed it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's great that there's more awareness around mental health and mental illness and there's some hopefully normalization and destigmatization around, you know, mental Health challenges and, and mental illness. Yeah, it's always been something for me that's been very close to home, just because I struggle with it so much for a better part of the first, you know, 25 years of my life. The other point that you made, which I just love so much, Mark, is that you're right. Like I'm crystal clear about one thing, which is that every piece of advice that I've ever given anybody else is really always only meant for me, <laughs> mostly. Right. So I'm the one person I can guarantee that will take it or not. I can't guarantee guarantee anybody else will. And I'm not also under the um, impression that I know what's best for anybody else. I want people to be happy, but maybe they'll discover something that I didn't in my journey.
0: I'm curious when you said that in that moment where you actually did already cut your wrist, you experienced this joy, which feels like that you'd never really accessed fully. And I'm curious how you explore that moment. Like, do you see that as grace? Do you see that as God? Do you see that as spirit? Do you see that as hard to say science. I don't know, you know, maybe that you've surrendered in that moment psychologically and all of a sudden the pain is, is, is surrendered to you. And and you, I don't know, like, I'm just really curious how you, if you can even intellectualize it.
1: What a profound question. So I've spent the following 20 years really trying to understand that, (laughs) you know, and I'm sure the answer will be a little disappointing to folks, but it's like, I would say yes, yes, yes. And yes to all of the options and possibilities presented there. Yes, it was grace. Yes, it was God, spirit, divine intervention. And yes, I think there's also some science to it as well. You know, for me at the time, I didn't really understand it at all. And so I started some research and the research was just that, you know, I'll look up and try to figure out, you know, how many people are out there also feeling like me. You know, that wasn't, you know, Really, it's something I thought about before. So I thought, well, you know, and I quickly discovered I wasn't alone. At the time, there was a lot of sort of um, airplay around this idea of the progress paradox. Progress paradox is this idea that as life has gotten better, we often feel worse for it, right? So between 1950 and early 2000s, we had, you know, 10 times the level of unipolar and bipolar depression. We had more, you know, sort of stress and anxiety and drug use was up and a lot of access one and access two disorders, and that was despite life getting better. That for the first time in probably a few generations, or actually probably ever, you know, most people were saying my life is significantly better than my grandparents' life, you know, or my parents' life. Like I was, you know, so despite technological advances that let us live longer, healthier lives, we weren't happier for it necessarily. And so mm-hmm. that's where I started, but ultimately I discovered, you know, after a few decades later, that what really happened there was two things: one, in Contemplating and truly considering the possibility that my physical life would come to an end, there was also a realization and recognition in a deeper way that my problems could also come to an end. So there was that piece, but mm-hmm. then there was that piece to it, which was that it wasn't that my problems had come to an end. It was that my thinking about my problems had come to an end. And so I eventually came around to realize and recognize that life itself wasn't the problem. You know, most of nature lives Perfectly problem free. I mean, they experience, you know, flora, fauna, you know, puppies and kittens and, you know, the daffodils all experience the same loss and misfortune and accident and death that we do as human beings, but they don't make a problem out of it the same way that we do as human beings, right? So all of nature is perfectly blissful except for, you know, man and woman. And so to that end, I came to discover eventually that my thinking was what was getting between me and peace or love or happiness or anything else that I truly wanted. It was just a mind, an obsessively, impulsively overanalyzing, worrying mind that was getting in the way of the true peace, love, and joy that was inherently, innately, always
0: mine. I mean, what a profound moment, you know, to think you're so present in that moment. One, I'm assuming, and in that, you're experiencing the possibility of your own mortality, but then also the perspective that if your life can end perhaps your problems can and your life can continue, which is really fascinating because you think of how without that moment, you wouldn't have that perspective. And of course, it's such an interesting thing to look at moments like that and be grateful for the perspective shift that just, you know, that, like, and I think about how many times life can change and just that. And your comment about people Life being progressively better, you know, quote unquote, certain not for everybody, for, as a collective, that's true. Is it the possibility that life can be so much better or the dramatic imagery that we get on social media, etc., that we see, okay, my life's pretty damn good, and I got this, this, and this, and you know, I drive a Jedi, or what you know, like whatever it might be. But I see that this other person on Instagram has a more perfect ass and a better car and a and so because comparison is going on, I now am less satisfied with my life than, which that's really fascinating to even think about too. So I'm curious about your thoughts on sort of moment of shift of mortality. And then is that true of the data? Is that sort of what's postulated about it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's a poignant and very insightful remark. No question about it, right? Comparison is definitely the judgment thief of joy, right? As is judgment, right? So, you know, anytime, you're comparing to your point. You're no longer experiencing presence. You're no longer in the present moment, and you're caught mm-hmm. up in the past or future. And or to your point, part of the challenge there is around paradox of choice, right? So Barry Schwartz wrote a fantastic book called The Paradox of Choice, and he's done a lots of studies around how we live in the land of the free, but also frustrated, right? And so the idea there is that mm-hmm. there's this proliferation of choice, and that's a really great thing. We all want more choices. Until it's eventually not a good thing, where you become so overwhelmed with the choices that are you know, at hand, that are possible for you and the options that exist, that you actually start to become and feel overwhelmed and stressed and anxious about it, not just about sort of making the right decision, but you also create this other possibility, a possibility that combines the pros and advantages and benefits of every option that you've seen, and you create this unreal, idealized option in your head that doesn't even exist, It's like, I want the extroverted, introverted person. You know, it's like, you know, I want the person who's a doctor who also chose not to be a doctor. It's like, you can't, you know. So part of the challenge is that you get, you you sort of get yourself, sort of find yourself in this place. And this is even worse for what we call maximizers, right? So maximizers are people who go to Cheesecake Factory and they have to read every single item on the menu before they make a decision. I'm one of those people, right? One of those too. Yeah. So for lots of reasons, including this paradox of choice, challenge. Comparison complicates things and it makes being joyful and peaceful and happy in the moment very difficult.
0: Yeah. It feels like gratitude is one space into that, like one pathway and then savoring another. And, you know, I think of things like Tinder that when people have these conversations about dating today, that obviously we have much more access. Like we can meet someone from across the world who might be a better match. And I think this is, it's fascinating because when you look at like a small town and let's say there's like 10 people who are, you know, whatever gender you're, you're going towards. And when you pick one of those 10 and maybe you dated nine and then got to the 10th or whatever, right? Cause that's, you know, what happens in smaller towns, you get to the one and because you know, your choices are smaller, your relational satisfaction might be higher. And it actually might be disproportionate. Like the actual experience might be shit, but because you're comparing to what you know, But then you move to New York and you're like, oh, man, like, wait, there's people who are like this and this and this. And I think, you know, because when you look at places like New York or L.A. or big cities, a lot of people discuss how challenging it is to date in them because we're sort of looking for the next one or like, oh, I had one frustration with you, one challenge. I want Disney taught me that all you should just know me. And if you really loved me, you should just get me, which I'm like. Don't hang love on that, you know? Truth,
1: facts. So (laughs) so, to your point, right, and we've seen lots of studies around that, right, like status anxiety and relative relative income, you know, and what that means. Like, you know, they've conducted studies and they found that, you know, essentially if you offer people $50,000 and everyone around them makes $25,000 and you say, now, would you rather that or would you rather make $100,000, but everybody around you makes200,000 dollars. Everybody chooses, or most people choose less money, but more relative money to their peers or to their colleagues, or coworkers or friends or family, than choosing more money, so they're willing to, you know, mm. basically sacrifice 50,000 dollars so that you know, in their head, relatively speaking, they can be better off. right? And so this is part of the challenge here, which is like, you know, there's like call it ego, but it works its way in there a little bit. but you had a care Paris thing. thing it's a real trap for folks and more choices you have. Sometimes the more you find yourself struggling with this comparison thing.
0: Yeah. I think it's an interesting paradox because you're sort of, if what is possible gets expanded and what you've, you know, like your experience of all of a sudden experiencing joy. So your, your emotionality in that moment went through a huge expansion. And then you're like, wait, if this is possible, then what else is possible? And so, you know, I never want to take, like, if you're from a small town and you moved to New York, like, well done, because all of a sudden you're like, things are possible. Or you meet someone, you have all these people around you, who have limiting beliefs about relationships, about work, about whatever. And then you meet people who are expansive thinkers, or they are like, you can do anything. And you're like, no one's ever taught me that. It's such bullshit. And they're like, watch me. And so there is such a beauty. So it feels like we're stuck in this paradox where it's like recognizing when you get to the place of expansion and you, you are living that purposeful life, or your relationship is, you know, experiencing depth, that you can still want more while being grounded in what you have. And I'm curious about this because last week you and I talked for like two hours about everything. We should have just recorded that. <laughs> but I'm curious what you think about that. That in, a, it seems like we have an inability to ground in what we have, and that paradox of choice comes in there, not being present. So. Curious what you think about that.
1: Oh, it's so good. So yes, and we should have recorded that conversation too. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> Same. So, you know, a couple of thoughts. And I've thought about this a lot because I used to really struggle with this. You know, I tend to, I want to be a black and white thinker, but the truth, is, I'm a very gray thinker, <laughs> right? And so I'm always experiencing this cognitive dissonance on the inside and the stress and anxiety that comes with that. And part of what I've come to feel and believe and experience is that when you're rooted planted in presence we can call it gratitude right and when you're aware truly deeply aware in an experiential way meaning you experience it yourself that true happiness is found in presence and not in well presence with the t-s right and not in external conditions or circumstances or people, places, or things. If you can really come to that recognition and realization, then what happens is you can stay rooted in this beingness, rooted and planted in presence, and you can be grounded in gratitude. And as you go about living your life, everything else is just icing on the cake, right? So when you're fulfilled already, then everything can kind of enhance that fulfillment, it can add pleasure to your life, but it doesn't have the ability to sort of compromise or dilute or take away that deep, lasting, meaningful and abiding sense of peaceful and alive and joyful presence. Right. And so, um, one way to think about it is, you know, like go for the cake, which is inside you will call that happiness and let everything else be added, the added stuff, which is just the icing on the cake. Right. If you do it the other way, if you look for the happiness and peace and love in the world and other people, places and things, what happens is you find that you never get to the end of that, right. There's never an end to the internet. You never get to the end of desire Because desire is really just thoughts that continue to come forth through your head. And you're always chasing this unicorn that doesn't exist, right? And so you always need more money or a different relationship or a new partner or more kids or less kids or whatever, right? And so, yeah, it's a real challenge, I think, for most of us. But I think you're absolutely right that the key for most of us and the challenge for most of us is to find a way to deeply enjoy and appreciate where you are in a meaningful way While you continue to look forward to and anticipate and enjoy all the other desires, goals, and dreams that you have, right? But you don't pursue those things just to get them. You pursue them because you enjoy the process and the journey along the way, too. So it's a bit of a cliche, but cliches are cliches for a reason. Mm. You want to find a way to not only set future-oriented goals, but present-oriented goals, right? Where it's like, and you spoke to it earlier, it's like, can I be more intrinsically motivated? Can I just focus on more of the intrinsic reward? Can I focus on the process and the action itself and try to enjoy that and not just the fruits of the action, not just the results? That's kind of another way of saying it. Yeah, being grounded in gratitude is certainly one of the keys to being both happy and successful.
0: When I think about those questions that can completely alter our state, you know, I keep coming back to that moment that you had Because I think about how much of a demand of presence that is in that moment and so intentional too. And if you can do something like that so intentionally, you know, it's, it's sort of like, I think about how many, how often we don't ask ourselves, cause you said, how do we get a little more intrinsically motivated to presence? And if we asked ourselves the things like, how do I distract myself? How do I, I'm curious, what are the sort of pathways that you invite people to take to go from. Being addicted to my phone, being addicted to choice, being addicted to, like not being able to actually experience gratitude and how do they access joy? Like, how do you teach people for them to have this sort of radical moment that you had? And if it's not radical, I'm sure you can do it step by step. So yeah, how do, how do you invite us to do that?
1: So I really struggle with gratitude. One of the things that happened leading up to that suicidal experience is that I was looking at my life really objectively. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have this incredible job that pays well. Don't love love the job necessarily, but the people were great. This incredible girlfriend, incredible health. You know, my family was all doing well. You know, we're all nice to each other. It was pretty incredible. And yet I couldn't feel gratitude. And I would try to keep a gratitude journal and I became really frustrated. Like I should be more grateful for my life. I should be more grateful for the running water that I have. But the more I tried, the less Gratitude, I actually felt. I became frustrated with myself around that. And so I came to discover, I guess, a few things. One is that I was probably reaching too high, I should have reached for the lower hanging fruit. It's like, can I feel grateful for the piece of chocolate I just had? Like, it needed to be a big deal. I was trying to make it a huge deal. That was part of it. The other part of it I discovered is that, you know, it was a mind thing for me mostly. I was thinking and very rational and intellectual about what I should feel grateful for and why I should feel grateful for it. But it wasn't really sinking down into my heart. And I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, we all know about this negativity bias the brain is sort of wired for. But I found that very quickly, I would say, oh my goodness, I feel so great for my health. And my mind would instantly say to me, yeah, but you're still going to get sick probably soon. You know, you're not you know, superhuman, wow. you're not Iron Man, you're going to get sick, and you're going to die. And other people are going to get sick and die too. So whatever it was that I felt gratitude for or try to feel gratitude for, instantly I came to this recognition and realization that it'd go away pretty soon, right? So it's like what's Buddhist, Buddha said, you know, there are only two kinds of unhappiness in the world. There's not getting what you want and getting what you want. I never understood that for the longest time. I'm like, how is getting what you want a problem, <laughs> right? But it's so, because everything's fleeting and everything's temporary, And everything's ephemeral. And so there was a recognition somewhere, this tiny little brain of mine, that everything was fleeting and temporary and ephemeral, but I couldn't dive deeper to discover this more lasting, meaningful, abiding place inside. We'll call it presence. But, you know, there's something unchanging from which you can experience or observe change, right? There's something changeless from where you can sort of observe the ebb and tie, the ebb and flow of life. Right. And so I wasn't at all familiar with any of that. Like I didn't know what was. I was like, well, if everything's going to go away and if I'm going to get sick and die and everybody and everything I love is going to get, you know, ripped from my hands eventually, why don't I just end it here and now? Right. And so I had a hard time being grateful for things that I thought would be ripped away from me or would rust away or rot away or, you know, in some other way be just taken away. And so I really struggled. So eventually I came around to realizing a number of things. One, reach for the low hanging fruit. So it's like, okay, I enjoy this thing now. Stop there. You know, Try don't, don't dive off into the discursive thought that, you know, reminds you of why even this thing that you have is great is really a bad thing, right? The other thing I discovered is that one of the shortcuts to gratitude is presence. Like without even focusing on the external world and life conditions and circumstances and without thinking about much, if anything at all, I can feel more gratitude just by focusing on presence, right? And so for me, thought- discursive thought in particular continued to get in the way of me feeling deep deeper and deeper levels of gratitude and so I, I discovered you know not even meditation micro meditations one breath when when i'd let my all my thoughts go and i'd simply enjoy the breath for its own sake helped a lot mindfulness helped Wonderful. a whole lot That's great yeah so i think being more in touch with my body being lost lost in the thoughts and stories in my head reaching for the low-hanging fruit all those things were extraordinarily helpful also flow state I think flow state was big for me. So I was an athlete and running was really helpful for for me. I often find myself feeling grateful without trying just when I was in flow state, when I was running or playing basketball or dancing or something of that nature. And so I discovered these other shortcuts.
0: Do you think that because you speak to how can I be grateful for something that will end, right? And you're making explicit what is implicitly true for all of us. You know, I think a lot of the times we avoid relating or going deeper in relationship. We date unavailable people. We keep our current relationships at tolerable level. What I mean by tolerable is that, let's say we've been disappointed by a parent, which who hasn't, like maybe significantly, maybe we've gone through a breakup that was devastating, that we create these upper limits in love that I know I can tolerate the amount of pain that's associated with this amount of love. And so we sabotage if it gets too deep. We we don't learn how to communicate better. We avoid more depth because more depth means, I've always thought about this, that the amount you love is always mirrored by loss in the exact same moment. And so when I think about what you're saying about just circumstances or life or relationships, that why bother? But it's fascinating because it really sounds to me, and I'm speaking in my own experience, is I was so afraid of, I'd never actually confronted mortality. And when I went through my last breakup, I confronted mortality in a giant way. All of a sudden, you know, I, I felt like grief I hadn't processed previously, I was buried in. And I remember just having this moment, didn't have suicidal ideation, but I had this moment of of awareness where I thought, I understand suicide now. Like I gotta understand why Someone wants to leave because I was so overwhelmed with pain and grief. And just because I had practiced mindfulness and practiced, I was able to observe the emotion and observe the state, but know that the state is temporary. Know that I would come through this, that it was cooking me in a way to grow me, expand me. It was, say, almost unbearable. And it was through calling a friend and saying, like, I need you now. I just need you to be here. And I wasn't afraid of what I was going to do, but I just needed someone to hold it with me. You know, like that idea of it takes a village. I just needed someone to just be here, to take a breath with me, to make food for me and with me, to tell me I'm loved, to care for me. And, you know, you think it was the confronting of mortality that made all those other things. Maybe that is really the path for us or we're invited towards is is if we can accept that all things end and really all relationships will end, either I'll die, my partner will die, you know, or we'll break up. It seems to be that it's inevitable. And it also seems to be the thing acknowledging it actually makes the things you have more beautiful. You know what I mean? So I'm, yeah, I'm curious that was a long thought process, but I'm curious.
1: I love it. And I so appreciate such confident like vulnerability, Mark. Like it's just so, admirable. Like I'm so inspired by that. And I love you sharing that story. It's a perfect jumping off point because yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's death that makes life so rich, so precious, right? So prosperous and so valuable. And it's the bitter that makes the sweet that much sweeter. Right. It's the contrast in life that makes it so rich. And that's why you know sometimes we talk about duality, right? And and there's also, I think, you know, um another level to that which is like, you know, for sure, you're gonna experience the ups and downs of life and the downs can make the ups feel that much greater, right? But the ups can also make the downs feel that much worse, right? But then there's yes. another piece and you spoke to this a little, which is like, it sounded like you were doing for yourself, but also something you asked your friend to do for you, which was like, hold this space and sit in this silence and just observe and befriend and watch and be a witness to whatever it was that you were thinking and feeling and wanted to say or share, right? Like without judgment, without condemnation, without criticism. I mean, what is true love other than that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something that we're invited to sort of explore within ourselves, for ourselves, but also with other people. And so I think that's the deepest, for me, recognition and realization is that I can, you know, you kind of have to take this ride called life, right? And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and sometimes you feel indifferent about it take it a number of different ways. One is you can be completely lost in the roller coaster ride itself. You can be lost in the movie itself and you can start to cry and complain and laugh and do all the things and throw tomatoes at the movie screen, right? Because you forget that you're watching a movie. You think the characters and the actors, it's all real, mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't mean that you don't experience this as real, but it's like, or you can occasionally remind yourself that I'm watching something. I'm observing something. I'm not going to add any additional, you know, insult to this injury by continuing to spin out my own head about it. I can just be with the feelings. I can be with the thoughts and I don't need to feed or fuel them by adding an additional level of suffering around it, which is judgment and criticism and condemnation, or trying to change or fix it at all, at least not right now. And in that is a deeper sense of felt peace and true joy and authentic love, right? And I think that's been the ultimate Lesson and takeaway in my life is that yes, um, pleasure is great in the world and people and places and conditions, circumstances, all great. And there's something greater for me, which is like that micro moment before you slip off to sleep at night when you forget the world entirely and you forget yourself and your friends and your family and you forget everybody and everything in it. And you're too tired to move your body and your mind really is left silent and still. That's such a sublimely blissful moment. It's like perfect peace and joy and bliss. And you feel like all is well. And then of course you slip off from your dream. So that for me, that moment, that micro moment is something that I'm always wanting to, you know, sort of only remember and stay anchored in, but experience over and over again, right? And death helps me with that because, you know, thinking about death reminds me that everything it is that I'm so worried and concerned about or so desirous of, you know, it's here for a second and I can appreciate it and then it's gone. And there's some place from which I'm aware of all that, where I observe all that, right? And place of sort of thoughtless, wordless, faceless, formless awareness of consciousness, that itself is the peace and the love and the happiness that I'm truly after. And that I seek in people, places, and things, but actually never lives or resides in people, places, or things. Um, So there's levels to it, I think.
0: Yeah, it seems as though you only seek it when you don't know it's already here, you know? And I don't mean to sound, you know, too esoteric, but that, that, you know, what you were saying, you have this life that you are living everything you're taught to want because you thought if you got those things, then you'd finally experience this joy. And it's only when you realize that you will lose the very presence within your own body that you realize the joy is already here. And it's all of us, this moment, I think there's more to life. I think can't find it in a Ferrari. I can't find it in perfect partner. We then begin either the very fast journey like you took or the slower journey back towards ourselves. And of course, you know, for me too, that journey was quick initially. And then you begin to learn all your socializations. You learn all the masks that you're just taught to wear that you don't even know are masks. And you realize that you're buried below all of social conditioning. And it's such a brave thing to, to live bravely without a mask. And also to be like, I didn't even know I was wearing this till someone pointed it out or I read a quote or a book, you know, or whatever it might be.
1: So good. It's like looking for your glasses when you're looking through the glasses, <laughs> right? right? It's like, it's <laughs> happened to all of us in some way or another. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a good example for me too. It's like, you know, I like to write and I'm always trying to make the book better and better and better. And I get caught up in the editing process. And so many times I've completely destroyed perfectly well-written book. By editing and editing to the end, thinking that, oh my gosh, it's just gonna get better and I needed to be better, not realizing the first version was way better, Rob, right? It's like that kind of experience, too. And so, you know, you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right about that. It's a challenging thing to even talk about, right? Because it does feel very woo woo, like, you know, that which you seek, you are, and that which you are, you seek. You kind of stop doing that thing, you know, but we're built in such a way that we're always gonna, you know, um, pursue goals and dreams and desires of whatever kind. I think the only real invitation for me is to not continually be seduced by the idea that my happiness will be found in anybody or anything else other than me, right? I mean, positive psychology, we talk about the hedonic treadmill, right? It's the idea that, you know, you adjust and acclimate to practically everything. I mean, human beings are like cockroaches. It's like we just adjust to everything. (laughs) So no matter how good things get, you know, you adjust and now you need more you know, or how bad things get, you adjust and all of a sudden you're okay with that, right? So it's a really beautiful, wonderful thing in one hand, but it can also be a problem because it can lead you to continue to seek things that will never satiate or satisfy.
0: I do remember learning about that and learning about, you know, chocolate will never be as good as the first time. And I was like, well, I don't know if that research works with chocolate, but it's certainly, you know, when they said, you know, it's It's like when someone just listens to the first 10 seconds of a song and I'm like, Oh fuck, I'm that person for sure. You know, and you're right. It takes so such an interesting awareness to have, to observe what is biological, but it's sort of drawing us away from soul. Like it is normal to find other people attractive when you're in relationship. And if you're in a monogamous relationship that can often be a source of tension As opposed to just calling forward that it's true, there's nothing wrong with you. There's actually, you're biologically everything's firing on all the cylinders. It's just what you do with what you're informed with, and you know, it doesn't mean I can't skip songs and listen to the first ten seconds. But eventually, I'm going to have to, you know, settle into and, and actually learn how to enjoy what is familiar. And this speaks so much to relationship, I think, because you know, we there's a great quote from Eric Fromm's book, The Art of Loving where he says, we confuse falling in love with being in love, you know, that in that we think that the very act of falling or the act of being in the honeymoon phase, that that's love. And he's saying love is actually part after. And I've always loved that line because I think I certainly was, I don't want to say a victim to that, but I was a proponent maybe of that thought of like, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And I think that's true at the beginning but I think there's times when I'm not a hell yes to my partner for sure. And there's times when she's not for me, but as a grand choice, like, you know, because everything's so subjective, it's like in that moment where I don't feel heard by her, she's not a hell yes in that moment. I'm sorry, but that's just true. And I know that on a grander scale, she's such a great choice. She's, we have aligned values. She has deep respect. We have deep respect and reverence for one another. She only wants me to be a better human. And when she gives me feedback, I don't like the feedback. She's certainly not a hell yes in that moment, but she's a hell yes in the grander moment because I know that her feedback is actually expanding me, making me a better man, a better human. And so it's this interesting, constant dance of like, you know, I think of the quote from Ram Dass, which I often reference of to be, sorry, from Jesus. It's from Christ, which he uses all the time, which is to be in the world, but not of the world. And isn't that just, it seems like that's everything.
1: Mm. It is everything. You nailed it. It's like, how can we be the center of the cyclone, right? In the world, not of it, you know, in the world and yet above it, beyond it, right? Overcome the world in that way. It's not like you overcome the physical world, but you suddenly find, yeah. you know, place of peace and equanimity and even tranquility that you can experience despite the conflict and chaos that exists around you, right? Or that even exists within you, seemingly, right? And so you're absolutely right about that. And I think, you know. Again, it's something that most of us found extraordinarily difficult and, and in the doesn't always make a whole lot of sense, but we've always, all of us have had at least one moment in our lives where we have experienced peace, despite everything around us seeming so problematic, or we have experienced, you know, calm when it's all been chaos and conflict. So if you can do it once, just rinse, wash and repeat from there. But also to your point, and it's an important one, it, it can't be happy by focusing on unhappy people. Parts or unhappy things, right? Can't be loving by focusing on that which you consider unlovable. You can't feel love by focusing on that which feels loveless to you, right? And so, so much of this is about focus and it's about attention. And, you know, to your point, like relationship situation, it's like so easy, not love people when you're focused on the seemingly unlovable parts about them or focus on the lovable parts, but in unlovable ways, right? It just seems so obvious. I think it was like Wayne Dyer said, you know, the law of flotation wasn't discovered by the contemplation of the sinking of things. So in other words, (laughs) happiness won't be discovered by thinking about unhappiness, right? And peace won't be discovered by thinking about conflict or chaos. You can't consistently focus on the pothole on Main Street, even if you're leaving in heaven, and expect to, you know, feel very much like you're in heaven, right? And so um, you're absolutely right about that, you know, and I think that's part of the beauty and wonder. And that I experience when I think about a Jesus or a Lao Tzu or a Buddha or a Mark is that there's personality uh-huh. behind where, where you focus. And that focus is everything, right? I mean, without focus on um, what they say in the course of miracles, um, you accomplish so little because of an undisciplined mind and you're much too tolerant mm-hmm. of mind wandering, right? It's a good way of putting it. It's like, yeah, the takeaway there for me is this. I used to vet thoughts based on whether or not they were true right? I would say, oh, this thing is happening in the world. I should think about it. Or this thing about me sucks. So I'm going to think about it. So I would vet thoughts based on whether or not they're true. Then one day I had this sort of download and it was like, stop vetting thoughts based on whether or not they're true and start vetting thoughts based on whether or not they're supportive, whether or not they're helpful. Mm. It can be true and supportive. It can be true and helpful. But just because it's true, doesn't mean it deserves your time, energy, and attention, right? And so I think that's a huge part of it too, which is like, is this thought, is this story, supportive? Is it helpful? Like, would I want to say this to my best friend if they were struggling? It's like, probably
0: not. (laughs) Maybe I should try something else. To be so mindful of our mind, you know, to actually curate your thoughts on such, you know, and I think a lot of the times when we're first beginning that journey, it feels laborious, you know, and it is laborious because if you've just let your mind be at the club all the time and drink whatever it wants and, you know, dance on the speakers, Telling it to chill on a couch and like meditate is unreasonable. That's why I like your, you know, grab the low hanging fruit. It's like start with just be like, hey, just hit the floor. Like no dancing on the bar, just dance on on the dance floor. Then maybe just be the person who dances on the side, not the creepy person, but like, you know, not the lure. It does take for me still work or practice. I would say it's still a practice to be mindful of my mind as it wanders. But, you know, I think of the first time I ever meditated, I never thought of micro meditation. Like you said to do one breath, just do one breath that's thoughtless and then continue if you can or don't. But like, at least you're just, that's low hanging fruit. That's small steps. And I remember when I first started meditating, I'd put my stopwatch on for like five, seven minutes. Like, when's this shit ending? You're like, how do I get, how do I speed up fucking five minutes? You know, which is nothing. Now I can do 40 without even really thinking about it. Man,
1: first meditation experience I had, I thought I was having a panic attack. I never had panic <laughs> attack before, but I was convinced of it. I was like in this room of like 30 beautiful, brilliant women, and they all seemed like expert meditators. And I was in 20 seconds in and I was like, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die today. Meditation class. So after that experience, I went home. I tried to do it for like 10 minutes instead of an hour, and I couldn't do it for 10, and I eventually discovered I could do it for one breath. One breath perfectly effective and not only that, yeah. but one perfectly enjoyable. So I was like, if I can just do one breath without thinking, without letting my thoughts go, I'm going to pretend like this is the last moment I'll ever have again. The last moment on earth. I'm going to really try to be sincere and serious about that. Like pretend like it's the last moment. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. I breathe from the diaphragm and do it just for the joy of it. I think that's the trick. Like to so much of life, it's like, Can I enjoy a single breath without letting thoughts get in the way, without judging, criticizing, or condemning myself, the breath, or anybody or anything else? Can I do and can I love and can I enjoy this single breath without asking it to be different or better or something more or something else? And it's like if you can do that for one moment and you do it for only the joy of it and you try to juice that one breath for as much joy as you could possibly get out of it, you discover that you can just rinse, wash, repeat. I mean, if you can do it for one moment or a micro moment even, you can do it again later. And so a micro meditation, to your point, has been one of the best tools that I've ever discovered for not only experiencing that sort of alive, peaceful presence that not only is within us, but is but is us, but also for just enjoying everything so much more deeply and truly. It's like you can practice that micro meditation when you're swiffering, folding laundry, somebody boring is talking to you. doesn't matter. Right. Like you can always practice that. So i found that to be so helpful. Yeah. The micro meditation is
0: a great tool. I'm curious for people listening. What are some of your like top three ways that we can transform our, you know, not just thinking or general a- affect, like how do we change our emotional state? What are some of the top three? Or if you got five, it doesn't really matter to me. It's just like, I think it's things that we can implement sort of right away that will, you know, based on the research, have an immediate impact upon us.
1: Yeah. So lots of great points there. So I'd say, of course, savoring is always very helpful. You spoke to savoring earlier, gratitude, of course. I'm a firm believer in flow state. I love flow state. So flow state is, of course, that state where you're so absorbed, engaged, and consumed with what you're doing that you don't spend hardly any time evaluating how you're doing, right? So there's a loss of self consciousness and time consciousness. For me, that's running when I'm running or mm. deeply involved in some sport or activity that requires me to be very sort of sensitive to what I'm feeling in my body. Like, you know, when my body's totally in it, very helpful. You know, I think one of the ways to sort of customize this list of things that allow you to feel that sort of or change your affect real quickly call it a happiness silence list. You can call it a positive affect list, but the idea is to identify for yourself. Those people, places, things, and activities that with very little time, energy, and effort allow you to feel inspired, energized, uplifted, happy to be alive. And you might find that they differ a little bit, you know, for you relative to me, but I think most people will find being in nature, listening to music, right? Music is it's just incredible for change. I don't know if there's anything that changes emotion more quickly than music. It can take you from sadness mm-hmm. to like sexiness, excitement, almost, you know, within a few seconds, a few moments. So of course, moving the body. Um, so that's why exercise is so great. Gratitude, savoring. I think that most of the positive effects sort of boosting tips, tricks, and tools tend to, you know, touch upon mindfulness for the most part. It's like, if you can just get more in touch with how your body feels and you can kind of get body in motion, you find that to be extraordinarily helpful. In- In terms of sort of enhancing the positive affect that you feel and the beautiful thing about that is when you enhance your positive affect you know and barbara frederickson's done a lot of great research around this she's got a theory called the broaden and build hypothesis but when you're able to access or enhance that positive affect you actually broaden your perspective of the world so you become a better problem solver you're a better creative thinker and you just think and perform at your best, right? You're much more efficient, effective, and efficacious, but you also enjoy more everything that you're doing, right? And so you're able to access this psychological and emotional capital that exists inside you at all times, but that you can access when you're feeling, let's say, negative affect, right? So I'd say that those activities are certainly some of the best.
0: I find it for research really fascinating in the aspect of, like, it makes so much sense that if I can when she was looking at what is it that evolutionarily, why do positive emotions serve us? And this idea that they widen your vision, they allow you to see more, which makes so much sense because being in, as you were talking about, like a negativity bias, if I'm in a negativity state or I'm in a state of fear constantly, because I watch the news all the time, that I will be in a collapse, my vision will be narrowed, All my gut won't get as much perfusion of blood, as opposed to being able to rest, digest, breathe in, connect. I mean, it's all so correlated. And then we think about all of the connections of positive affect, movement, mindfulness, and all of those connections to our immune system, our our ability to heal, our general health. I mean, it's all the same stuff. Everything that helps with health, helps with relationships, helps with inflammation, helps with it all.
1: And to your point, really great point, which is like, and you're right, it's like you know, if you hear there's, there's pleasure in there. So we talk, sometimes talk about this PERMA, it's an acronym. But it's like pleasure, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. But the idea there is certainly pleasure. Anything that you find pleasure in is going to increase your positive affect. Um, anytime you're able to exercise your strengths, Um, You know, you've all got these signature strengths. You can go on and take an assessment, you know, character values and strengths sort of assessment. Um, It's a via um, signature strength sort of assessment. And anytime you're able to flex those strengths, you find that you also feel more engaged with life or with the people in your life. Um, Of course, relationships. So, you know, you often find that certain people just maybe for lots of good reasons or no good reason, just allow you to feel uplifted and um, inspired and loved. And that will instantly shift your positive affect. We know that particularly from the positive psychology body of research, like relationships probably matter more than anything else, not romantic mm-hmm. ones necessarily, but those two, just relationships in general, right? Social support. The other piece of it is when you're engaging or flexing your strengths in the service of others, right? We call that meaning in a positive psychology perspective. So it's something greater than yourself. That also increases positive affect a great deal. I mean, one of the best ways to get outside of this spin cycle and self-ruminative, you know, thought patterns you might find yourself stuck in is by literally, you know, stepping outside of yourself and donating time or money or blood or energy to, you know, helping somebody else, right? Or helping the world at large. And so all of those things are extraordinarily effective. We're each different, though. We're each different in so many ways. Spirituality is another good example. Somebody can pray and feel a real connection. They can feel real uplift from that. And other people won't feel anything from the same prayer or from the same ritual. So that's why it's important to sort of take the science and then customize it and personalize it for your own unique personality.
0: Well, I think that's a great invitation for all of us to do something kind for another person today get very present with a micro breath where you acknowledge your thoughts or maybe just have one breath that's thoughtless and just enjoy it. Breathe in, experience some state of gratitude, just a small, low hanging fruit. And my friend, where can people find more of you?
1: Yeah. So you can find my website at coachrobmack.com. You can find me on most social media platforms, but probably most consistently Instagram at Rob Mac, official. And you can find my first book, Happiness from the Inside Out, everywhere great books are sold, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble.
0: Amazing. My friend, thank you for coming on today and sharing your wisdom. We're going to have to have you back on to jam on more things, you know, to get into more of the esoteric, into the deeper. Maybe we'll both have to eat mushrooms and then do a (laughs) podcast.
1: Yes, exactly. My part, I'm so genuinely grateful for you. I mean, I get shivers every time I connect with you. And I just want to thank you so much, not just for what you do, but also who you are. Like this guy that I'm talking to today is like the guy that shows up every single time I connect. And I appreciate that so much. So thank you so much for just being you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much because I've enjoyed our conversation so much. And I wish we had recorded on the two hour one we had where we were just jamming and getting to know one another. And for everyone listening, go check out Rob. Go follow him on all the places. And thank you very much for being here today.